This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Strava, the number one app for cyclists and runners. And now they're launching a podcast, Athletes Unfiltered. Athletes Unfiltered tells remarkable stories of everyday athletes in the Strava community, like Austin Reba, a mountain biker who watched the trails he loved go up in flames and then decided he was going to do something unprecedented to bring them back. I remember getting to the top of the ridge up on uh, West Camino Cielo and looking east and just seeing a wall of smoke approaching Santa Barbara. Burn your eyes, burns your throat, ash falling like snow. The podcast is hosted by ultra runner Hillary Allen, who shares her story in their first episode. In 2017, while competing in a running event so technical they call it a sky race, Hillary fell 150 feet down the side of a cliff. Everything she's done since has been just as unexpected. I feel like I'm someone new. People call this like a comeback, but I disagree because I'm not the same, nor will I ever be the same. I mean, even I'm constantly changing all the time. Whether you're competing in sky races yourself or just trying to make it around the block for the first time, Athletes Unfiltered is full of stories that make you want to keep training, keep going. You can subscribe to Athletes Unfiltered wherever you're listening right now. That's Athletes Unfiltered from Strava. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. Just gonna test your guys' mics with Chris Katz. I want to start this episode with a quick and easy guided meditation. So, if you can, just take the next thirty seconds for yourself to just notice things. Where are you? What's your body doing? What do your feet feel like? Your legs? Your shoulders? Take half a minute and just observe. Okay, turns out 30 seconds, it's a bit ambitious for a podcast intro. But if you have the chance, go back and do it. Because it seems like every day there's more research showing the benefits of mindfulness. How it reduces stress, lowers blood pressure, boosts the immune system, increases our capacity to learn and may even slow the aging process. What we're only starting to figure out, however, is how meditation might improve athletic performance. We just don't know a whole lot about how that might work. What we do know is largely thanks to the folks in charge of an eight-week mindfulness class developed at the University of California at San Diego called MPEAK. The acronym stands for Mindful Performance Enhancement, Awareness, and Knowledge. And the class is an offshoot of a study conducted in 2014 when a group of neuroscientists and mindfulness experts from UCSD joined forces with coaches from the USA BMX cycling team to study a meditation-based curriculum for elite athletes. Over seven weeks, Olympic-level racers practice mindfulness to increase interoceptive awareness, the sensations you feel in your body that signal emotions like fear or happiness. And afterwards, cyclists were better equipped to handle stress during races. The athletes' brains change as well. Before and after the program, participants were given a stress test while lying in an fMRI machine. The results showed that the athletes had reduced connectivity between the part of the brain responsible for self-awareness and the part that controls decision-making. So basically, when stressed, athletes were less self-conscious, less distracted from the task at hand. And so, word of the 2014 study's results spread quickly through the elite international coaching community, and athletes from all over the world have been flocking to San Diego to take the eight-week class. 
MPEAK also has a teacher training, and the class is now being offered in select locations, including Santa Fe, New Mexico, where Outside is based. Last fall, Outside editor Chris Kyes took the MPEAK class, joining 11 other students every Monday night for a series of exercises designed to promote mindfulness, and then undergoing stress tests to try out those techniques. Chris wrote about the class in the January-February issue of the magazine, and then more recently, he caught up with the MPEAK program director, Pete Kirchmer, to talk about the intriguing links between mindfulness and elite athletic performance. Here's Chris. So you linked up with the Center for Mindfulness around the time that this study was finished. And I imagine when the results came out showing these pretty remarkable changes in the brain, um, I imagine the demand for this course just dramatically spiked. Yeah, because this was unique. Most of the performance studies around mindfulness at the time, and really still, uh, for the most part, are subjective outcome measures. So, you know, there are flow scales and there's resilience scales, but these are just assessments that people are, you know, using to self-report. And so this was one of the first studies that was beyond self-report data that would show, you know, the neural correlates of performance in the brain. And so there was some excitement about that for sure. And you're charged then with overseeing the um, the MP classes. Um, and so do you work with a lot of athletes and teams now? We have a pretty mixed demographic that come to the courses through the Center for Mindfulness. Um, first responders, police officers, and Department of Homeland Security. I've worked with athletic teams, uh, groups of sports psychologists, uh, and also work with corporations. There's something that's very, I, I would say, there's this kind of common humanity or this universal truth of all of the high performers that come in. These feelings of like, like they need to be on and performing at all times, low tolerance for mistakes, um, high inner criticism, uh, perfectionism, a willingness to strive and drive themselves towards injury or burnout, and then tolerate the symptoms of that for an extraordinarily long period of time. And, uh, you know, whether these are executives, first responders, or athletes, they all seem to feel like, yes, this is true about them. And so uh, there's more in common with the participants of an MPEAK than there is different, uh, no matter what their area of performance is. Mm. Yeah. So in taking the course, you know, one of the things that I, I've taken other meditation classes before, and one of the things that was... Uh, unique about this one is it it really introduces you to a variety of mindfulness techniques. Um, you know, we started with the body scan, which you know, walks you through really focusing and bringing attention and awareness to, to all parts of the body, moving up from your toes to your head. We learned box breathing, uh, walking meditation, movement meditation, uh, and then more traditional sitting. What's the thinking behind that? Are are you building towards a certain type of meditation or are you trying to give um, your students as many techniques as possible to fall back onto? All of the above. And you know, each formal practice cultivates something slightly different. And so the body scan really is building uh, interceptive awareness, the ability to sense um, with finer detail the subtleties of, of sensation. Um, and what we know is that stress can be felt first in the body, right? So, you know, noticing anxiety as a subtle heartbeat, noticing um, 
than other things that are relevant to athletes. Like this feels like it could turn into an injury if I don't pay attention to it. Uh, and so these signs may come to the surface um, much quicker, right? They, they will be more closely attuned to their body so that they can then give themselves the rest or recovery or physical therapy they might need, um, sometimes weeks before they would have done without the meditation. Uh, this also can be things like um, food intolerances, right? Just the the awareness that that food did not energize me like another food. So it can be really relevant, this subtle body awareness that is gained through the body scan. Uh, but then when you look at, we have two different types of sitting meditation. We can call it a concentration practice, which is this awareness of breath. And another, uh, which we call open awareness or open monitoring. And um, awareness of breath cultivates uh, this ability for this focused, concentrated, laser-like attention. Um, we, we would call it like the, the flashlight or spotlight of awareness, where open awareness cultivates more of this kind of spacious awareness. We would call it lights on in the room, um, which is good for situational awareness, being able to walk into a room and be present to all that's happening rather than focusing just on one thing. And being able to have both of these capacities is important because there's different times in one's life or sport or work where this focused attention is required, where we can choose to sustain awareness on one object for a duration of time. And other times it's more appropriate to be able to take in the entire landscape, noticing the sounds, the sights, the smells, um, or when the when the when the eyes are closed and we're sitting in meditation, noticing um, the subtleties of mind, thoughts, emotions, liking, not liking, um, things that would normally go under the radar uh, of consciousness. Yeah, another aspect that kind of drives it at, at the same goal is um, another aspect of the course I found fascinating was something called the unpleasant events calendar. And um, we were asked to, you know, record several times during the week um, between classes, you know, when something went wrong during the day and how we felt that in the body. What's, what's the goal there? To just recognize the relationship we have with pleasant or unpleasant or what we sometimes call um, peak or off-peak moments. Um, so when a, a pleasant or a peak moment is happening, um, it, it's important to recognize the mind states that are there, the body states that are there. On one hand, maybe we can find our way back to that state more easily once we really recognize the causes and conditions of it. But we can also recognize how we can become attached to or begin seeking these pleasant or peak moments, even when they're not available. And so rather than being present to what's actually here now, we're caught up in looking for something that feels more pleasant or more effective. Um, when studying off-peak moments or the unpleasant, we can recognize the patterns of aversion, the kind of mental stories we tell about how this isn't good or right or I don't want this or need this. And then this even sense of aversion or escaping, zoning out uh, that can be experienced in the body. Um, and when that's recognized, we can more easily be with whatever's there so that if it's a pleasant event or an unpleasant event, we can still hold this kind of uh, awareness with equanimity rather than constantly 
uh, running away from unpleasant and running towards the pleasant. Yeah, you said something there, and and, and I know you work with um, you know all kinds of high performers. Uh, I want to specifically talk about athletes a little bit, and what you said there. You know, the, the kind of idea of zoning out, which obviously can happen. Um, I'm a runner. Anytime I, I've been in a race, there's definitely periods of zoning out, or if I'm you know hurting. Um, why is zoning out versus kind of really recognizing maybe the pain I'm in? Um, not as good of a tactic. So I actually won't even say that zoning out is bad. You know, I've got some ultra you know, endurance marathon runners that uh, are now taking the MP coach training. Um, and I've heard the stories of lots of you know, endurance athletes and, and they may have strategies of singing songs or, you know, certain, certain visualizations they'll do. And, and so I call it like mindful zoning out, like you're choosing when it's appropriate to sing your song or using this mental strategy for a long distance run but you're still aware you're doing it. And so there's this distinction between like an intentional zoning out and an unintentional zoning out where one just gets lost. Um, And then maybe you wouldn't pick up the subtleties of mind and body that are holding you back. Right. And so as a, you know, uh, let's use the kind of road runner or, um, you know, marathon runner as the example, if someone passes them and they're zoned out, uh, they might not notice that what's happening subconsciously is the feeling or the the thought process around being defeated, right? The wind out of the sails. But when they're kind of tuned in, they can recognize, oh, that's a performance story that every time someone passes me, uh, I start to give up some of my power and slow down a little bit. It doesn't have to be true. And instead, I'm going to recognize this condition pattern and I'm going to keep my same stride or I might turn it up a little bit instead. So it gives them just more ability to to make choices as they're performing in the event rather than being on autopilot, Um, which, you know, there's, again, time and place for that, but it's not always effective. What about pain management, which is obviously another um, pretty common factor for anybody in the endurance crowd or actually just about any sport, but how can mindfulness, um, be used as a tool when you're, you're suffering? Yeah. So, you know, there's both for physical and emotional pain. Um, the conditioned reaction is to want to resist it, deny it, repress it, avoid it. Um, and again, there, there may be a time and place for that. So I'm not going to take a firm stand and say that's bad and mindfulness is, is good. Um, it's just recognizing our relationship to pain is what mindfulness teaches. So we do the exercise that uh, y- you probably did in, in your MP class called the ice bucket challenge, where we have them submerge their hand in, you know, in ice. And then we time it and we just say, you know, stay in for as long as you can take your hand out when you need to. And we have them do one experiment where they're trying to distract themselves. And on the other hand, they're mindfully monitoring their experience. And the distraction technique, what what's found is it is only a temporary solution. You can distract effectively for a short period of time, but eventually there's this rebound effect. Uh, and it, in the sensations are going to come back with a vengeance. Mindful monitoring is this willingness to feel the feelings rather than trying to get away from them. And in a way, kind of accept them, um, 
make peace with them might be a little bit too far of a stretch. But again, this, this word equanimity comes to mind. Being able to just allow that, yes, this is happening, uh, and then let the sensations inform your choice. Um, some people are conditioned to pull out of the ice too quickly, out of fear. Other people have this relationship to pain where they're going to stay in until they would get frostbitten. It's interesting for them to recognize the relationship to discomfort, to be striving and forcing or to be giving up. And what mindfulness does is allows them to find this kind of balanced effort to know when like, nope, it's uncomfortable, but I can stay in there a little bit longer. I can tolerate this. This is going to be okay. I'm going to stay in for a couple more breaths. Nope, three more breaths. I still got this. And then at some point to say, you know, actually the symptoms of this suggest that it's time to take the hand out of the ice. And again, this is a metaphor for any discomfort in someone's life. Uh, there's a time to stick it out and there's a time to mindfully um, say, hey, that's enough. Yeah, I found this one, one of the most fascinating exercises in the class um, because it did sort of contradict my, my notions and my, my own techniques. And, and I did find in the second go around, like that really focusing on the pain and just being with it, I was able to withstand a lot more than I would have thought. Whereas before it would have been like, I'm going to do anything to not think about how much pain I'm in right now. Yeah, yes. The research strongly does suggest that mindfulness does increase pain tolerance and the ability to, to stay calm with you know, physical sensations that are unpleasant. Mm. So over the years of teaching this class and to different populations, do you find at all that there are certain techniques that work for some athlete groups versus others, or is it hard to, um, to pin that down? I really reflect that back to, to the group and I have them identify what are your performance moments, your mindful moments. And so say like a, a mixed martial artist is going to have different mindful moments than a golfer or an ultra marathon runner. Uh, and so the, the practices all serve equally, but then how they integrate the insights from the mindfulness meditation practice into their area of performance varies de you know, depending on their sport. So the, you know, the mixed martial artist may find that it's the kind of pre-event routine of breathing and warming up the mindful walk, you know, toward the cage, the mindful circling of the cage, being present to the eye contact with the opponent. Uh, and then once the, you know, kind of the bell rings, then the idea is you probably are going to enter more of a flow state and just trust that your training is going to be there. It's a little less intentional. It's a little more spontaneous. Um, but then when the bell rings again, or maybe during a clench, you know, the time when, when, two fighters are uh, kind of clenched together or locked up, um, that might be a moment they've identified as time to pause, reflect, catch their breath, you know, ask themselves, how am I doing? Is this working? Um, the, you know, the, the minute between rounds might be another opportunity that they've identified as being a mindful moment uh, for intervention. But then when you look at, say, like an ultra runner, where it's just the gun goes off and you're going for forever, uh, really there's infinite opportunities for mindfulness. And so they may choose certain, you know, legs of the journey where they're going to 
do their distraction techniques. Uh, and then there's certain ways that they'll say, you know, check in with themselves at certain mile markers or certain time markers and just become present to the body for a minute, two minutes, really assessing their pace, the sensations, uh, their energy level, and, uh, and then can make any changes necessary based on the feed that the feedback they get. So I can't be an expert on all sports, all, you know, and then even when, you know, with first responders, different um, law officers do different work, uh, you know, different companies have different opportunities. So um, really it's a discussion or an inquiry where all of the individuals get to, once they have this foundational understanding of mindfulness, get to identify uh, how they can use mindfulness in their areas of performance best. And then we create what are called informal practices where, where they would, um, I guess, consistently apply mindfulness, you know, in the areas that they'd identified. Mm. So I want to talk about flow, which is something we got into in the later stages of the course. Um, first, what exactly is flow? The state of high performance. And when I say state, it really is that. It's a state that's usually temporary, um, hard to control, but possible to prime for. So flow kind of just happens when all of the conditions, both internally and externally, are aligned. Some of the internal conditions that uh, that we know about are usually there's this kind of loss of thought, what they call sense of self, and we'd say self is only made or created through thought. Um, and so this less thinking, more a deeper embodiment, um, and this balanced effort where one's skill level is equally proportionate to the challenge or maybe where the challenge is just a little bit higher than one's skill. Um, external conditions like a novel environment, some unpredictability, some risk. Right? So when, um, when all of these factors come into play, this kind of flow experience is available where the, the high performer merges with the activity uh, and usually it's said to be quite pleasant and a high degree of effectiveness. And so obviously for any athlete, that would be, you know, the optimal state to be in, in competition. Um, so what do we, what's the relation and the connection with mindfulness? And you had talked, um, you mentioned earlier that there, there are ways that we know we can prime ourselves for that state. What, what, what do we know about that? Yeah. So we can take like one factor, like, um, selflessness and we'll take the opposite which is being caught up in thought or in mp we call it the performance story and so this might be um rather than really just being in the flow being a body running uh the mind would be consumed with oh no maybe i didn't eat enough i'm feeling like i'm gonna bonk i don't usually bonk this soon what did i do wrong what do i need to do to keep this going? right just ruminating um, which would be a flow killer. Uh, but with mindfulness, we can recognize and even label, oh, that's rumination. That's not going to be supportive. And the meditation trains us how to let go of that thinking and come back to just the embodied experience of running. And so we become out of our mind. The mindfulness training can help us get out of the mind and into the body. Another flow condition is this balanced effort. Right. And so being able to monitor um, 
on a spectrum from striving to giving up how much effort one is exerting. What we know is that in a long distance race, you can't sprint the whole time, right? This is not going to be conducive to flow. There's going to be a sense of overwhelm or anxiety. Um, and yet the opposite is also true. If you're not exerting enough energy, there's going to be boredom, um, apathy. And so being able to check in with the body and assess how much do I have to give and then to give just that right amount and maybe just a little bit more um, based on you know what's needed rather than being conditioned to just sprint right out of the gates. Um, and so, the, so I would say this balanced effort and the ability to get out of the mind and into the body are what prime or how mindfulness help us to prime for flow the best. And are there athletes who can literally switch on flow or is it something that is just completely, you, you set the conditions for it and hope? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my understanding of it. They, they say like, um, in meditation training, there's a, a saying that says enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes you accident prone. And I kind of feel the same way about flow. Flow is an accident. Meditation makes you accident prone. Um, again, that's my understanding of it. I have absolutely heard athletes claim that they have, uh, you know, kind of the, the on switch for flow. So to be determined, I don't think research has, has said one or the other. Mm. So athletes and other groups do this course. and can you give people a sense of, so during the eight weeks, you know, I think a lot of people think of, Oh God, a meditation practice. I gotta, I gotta sit for an hour a day. Um, is that the case for the, for this eight week course for the people who saw, um, these literal brain changes, what kind of a commitment are they, um, making for those eight weeks? So for the initial mindfulness-based stress reduction research, there was a fairly large commitment of 45 minutes, like six days a week. Now, whether people actually complied with that, you know, we don't always know, but that was the bar that was set. Um, MPEAK takes a slightly different uh, stance towards how much one can practice um, in that, uh, you know, my intention is for the participants to build a sense of autonomy and self-efficacy. And uh, what research says around the best way to do that is to let them set up experiments with how much they're going to practice. And so there are guided audios of various lengths, mine are 15 minutes and 30 minutes. Um, but I also share with them different apps that may even have five minute, 10 minute or 45 minute versions. And then each week is an experiment where they set an intention for how many days they're going to meditate and for how long they're going to meditate. And then each week, then we would evaluate, did that feel like it was workable and can we stretch it just a little bit further? Or maybe you overshot, um, got a little ambitious and need to back it off a little bit to find your sweet spot. And so um, there is some research that suggests kind of this minimal effective dose, which is around 20 minutes, four times a week to make brain changes. Uh, and so we also do equip them with like, hey, most of the research on MBSR is 45 minutes, um, six days a week, kind of minimal effective dose is this. Uh, now you choose, now that you have kind of the, you know, the research, do the experiments, find what works best for you. And uh, I, I find that that's more accessible for most people than to hang this you know, really high bar where, especially when high performers already tend towards perfectionism and this all or none behavior, this really, um, you know, it's more inclusive. 
So after um, students take this class, does that affect essentially wear off over time or is it, are there permanent changes made or is it only if you keep up with this practice um, for, for the rest of your life? Well, these are still areas that are being studied, you know, and there, there is a lack of longitudinal studies. Um, it does seem pretty obvious that meditation is dose dependent. And so the more you meditate, uh, the more changes you're going to get. Um, but it's also looking like um, the changes in the brain that come from meditation are similar to muscle adaptation to exercise. And that, uh, you know, if you don't ever meditate again, the benefits may last for weeks and even months, but uh, probably would start to lose them if this was not um, kept up as a, as a life practice. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I found unique, and again, from, from other meditation programs I've, um, I've taken, this one's designed for high performers and people who set big goals and are really sort of invested in outcomes. And it would seem in some ways, at least on the surface, to go against kind of the traditional Buddhist approach to mindfulness of sort of non-attachment and striving. And is there any uh, resistance among the the high performers that you work with to kind of that aspect of mindfulness of sort of the, that letting go aspect? Not in the way we frame it. And so I can even speak directly to non-attachment and non-striving. Um, when we frame it as non-attachment to outcome um, and then explain it, people do understand that if your mind is only focused on some you know, experience of winning three months from now and not present to the opportunities in in each moment to practice, that that wouldn't be beneficial. And people understand how getting caught up in the results rather than really just focusing on what can be done now and training themselves to be their best uh, is counterproductive. Um, And so we we kind of set it up as a like a both. Um, Yes, you're you're finding winning important. That's okay. you can want a certain outcome, but let's set that on the shelf. Focusing on that every single day is not going to be helpful. Let's set that intention for whatever your, you know, your external goal is. But then let's stay present to the process of the training. And when it comes to the non-striving, um, instead of saying don't strive, because that's just that is kind of hard for athletes and high performers to understand. Uh, I again use this model of balanced effort where I'll say, let's define striving as being this white knuckled jaw clenching, teeth grinding, nail biting effort to force something to happen that often results in injury and burnout. You know, when we define striving to that extent, people are like, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense. That, that wouldn't be effective. But in the opposite side, it's this giving up, this learned helplessness, this fear of failure that and, you know, results in paralysis. Uh, yep, that's not good either. And then we encourage them to find, like, what is the most you can give that feels sustainable and safe um, in any given moment? depending on all of the different variables that, you know, that occur from day to day so that they can stay on that edge. And again, the flow model would suggest that if the challenge is much greater than one's ability or competence, they would, uh, they would experience anxiety and overwhelm and that's not effective. Right. And so the idea is to have people experiment with how much effort can you give while still staying in, in, you know, in your own zone. And that's, that seems to be accepted. 
uh, and also stay consistent with the, the traditional teachings. That's Chris Kyes in conversation with Pete Kirchmer. This piece was produced by Chris, Robbie Carver, and myself, with music by Robbie and help from Mike Roberts. It was brought to you by Strava and their new podcast, Athletes Unfiltered. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine. We'll be back in two weeks.